And uh, I'm glad that new Christians get that. And I'm just thankful for you, Brother Horry, and for your wife, for your faithfulness to the Lord. Let's take our Bibles now and open them to 1 John chapter 2. And this evening we're moving on to the seventh verse in chapter 2, where we are introduced to another test that John gives that will help define a true believer. Now remember that John made a comparison between truth and lies, and he showed that those who are true believers walk in the light as God is in the light, and those who don't believe walk in darkness. They may profess that they know Christ, they may say that they have fellowship with God, but if their way of life is the old way of life, if they are still in sin, then John says these are people who are liars. In this epistle, John proposes tests that you can apply to your life to, know that, to show that you really know Christ. And it's amazing how many times as we go through Scripture that we find that there are benchmarks for belief. And so over and over again, we are commanded in the Scriptures to examine ourselves. We are to check ourselves out to see that we are truly in the faith. Now, on Sunday mornings in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, we're on the same track with this. We're in the closing remarks of the Sermon on the Mount, and the conclusion there uh, states some of the very same things that John is talking about here. Are you really a Christian? Are you inside and outside thoroughly Christian? And that's not an insignificant question. Uh, there is a great deal of religious activity that goes on in people's life. There are professions of faith that are made. People say that they know Christ. There are church-going people that think that they know the Lord and they're on their way to heaven. But I'm afraid there are many, many who are lost. John encountered these types of people and he writes about them. Amongst the true believers that were in this church that he was writing to, uh, they, there were people that claimed that they knew Christ, said they had fellowship with God, said that they were on their way to heaven, but there really wasn't a demonstration of it in their lives. And so John proposes these tests, and he says, or in effect what he says, if you don't pass the test, then you're not really a child of God. Well, in the next verses, we find another of John's tests. We'll look at verse number 7. Uh, tonight, starting in verse number 7. We'll read down to verse number 11. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past, and the true light now shineth. He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness had blinded his eyes. There are three tests that are woven throughout this epistle. And in the end, John explains why that he put us through this self-examination. The answer to it is in Chapter 5, verse number 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. So the bottom line of why John writes this letter is assurance. Do you want to know that you are truly a Christian? And for people that were living in tough times, people that were being persecuted, when there was much apostasy that was affecting the church, when there were those in their own congregation who were false teachers and were teaching lies, this was a very pertinent question. 
Do you want to know if you're going to heaven or are you not going to heaven? And I could state the crux of that in a little bit different way. Does your life glorify God? And if you can look at your life and examine what you do, what you say, where you go, the kind of attitude that you have, when you examine your life, is it one that glorifies God? And if you find out that there is any other interest in your life that you put above glorifying God, then it's a good indication that you're really not one of God's children. Jesus delineated that same thought in Luke chapter 14 when he made a shocking statement. And I'm sure it was to people that would follow him. He said, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And what Jesus is telling us there is that you cannot put anything in his place. doesn't matter how dear it is to you. doesn't matter who you love. You can't put anything above Jesus Christ because he, in fact, is the glory of the Father. And so if you put anything in front of him, there is no way that you can glorify the Father. So there are tests then that are proposed. Do, do you have this kind of commitment to him? Well, in the past two messages, we discovered one of John's tests. In verse number 3, it says, And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And John says in verse number 5, If you keep God's word, you'll know that you're in Christ. So what we're looking at here is a moral test. It's a test of obedience. And those that are in darkness fail the test. And if they fail the test, he said, they are liars. They can't claim to be in Christ and at the same time live a life in disobedience. Well, this evening we come to a second test. And the tests that John proposes here are really intertwining tests. And what you'll find as you go through the book of John, this little bitty epistle here, that these themes keep overlapping. I mean, they're just woven right on top of one another, just like braids. And what we have here is three strands that run through 1 John. Uh, And the middle strand, uh, perhaps we could call it the core strand, is the test that we find in verses 7 through 11. And from the title of the message, and from what we just read, you should understand that the core strand is love. But this strand is not separated, or this test is not separated from the first test, and that's the test of morality, of obedience to God's Word. It's not separated from righteousness. And to prove that it's not, all that you need to do is just remember the very last verse that I quoted at the end of the sermon last week, where Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So these two things, obeying God and loving God, are very, very closely connected. One commentator said it this way, There is nothing so surprising to the natural mind as the New Testament expositions on the subject of love. For some reason or other, we tend to think of love as being a mere matter of sentiment and feeling. We tend to regard it as simply an emotion. And we tend to carry this over into our thinking concerning the New Testament's great gospel of love and the announcement of the love of God to offending sinners. Yet think for a moment of John's gospel and his first epistle in which so much is said about love and also of 1 Corinthians 13 you will see that their whole emphasis is upon the fact that love is something which is very practical. How often does our Lord say in various ways, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. So the core strand in First John is love, and that is inextricably 
connected to the commandments. And just to show you that that's true, we look at the way that John starts out with verse number 7. He says, Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Now there, so far, John had said nothing at all about love. But we do know that love is what he has in mind when he speaks of an old commandment and a new commandment. He says in verses 9 and 10, He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. So that tells us that love is the underlying issue in verse number 7. And so we need to find out how love is tied to the commandments. And that's where we begin tonight. First is love in the law. Now, this is a somewhat confusing beginning. Verse number 7 says that love is not a new commandment, but an old one. And verse number 8 says it is a new commandment. And so without going a little bit deeper here, we are not too sure if John hasn't crossed himself up. And we talk about these interweaving themes that go through First John. Maybe he forgot where he was. And we would look at this and... We would see the way it switches in this braiding process, and we might think, well, what we have here is a 90-year-old man with Alzheimer's. He, he does it, he's got a new commandment, an old commandment, and he contradicts himself here. But not so. This is a clear mind. This is a mind that has been influenced, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. It's also a mind that's been honed by years of experience. And so the confusion here is not his, Confusion may be ours, and we need to find out what exactly does John mean. So we're going to look at this. First, we look at the old commandment. He says, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which he had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which he have heard from the beginning. Well, where do we find love in the law as an old commandment? Well, we need to remember that John is primarily an apostle to the Jews. We discussed that when we were studying verse number 2 of this chapter. And anybody who at that time was a Christian would certainly be aware of Old Testament scriptures. But the Jews, they would be the ones who knew it the very best. When Jesus expounded the law to uh, the Jews, he wasn't speaking to ignorant people. Oh, these were people that knew the letter of the law. They knew exactly what God's law said. And so Jesus tested their understanding of the law. He did this in the Sermon on the Mount when six times he said, You have heard that it hath been said. And from there he went on and he gave correct interpretations of God's law. And in the last six of those sayings, six times he said that, but in the last one he said, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Now there, Jesus is making a reference to Old Testament law. And we find it in Leviticus 19.18. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. So this was the law, first of all, that was codified by Moses. Previous to the giving of the law, uh, giving the law to Moses, love is not mentioned in the Scriptures except in connection with family members. Now, for instance, we read in Scripture that Isaac loved Esau, but the Bible says that Rebekah, Isaac's wife, loved Jacob more than she did Esau. Jacob loved Rachel, the Bible says, but he didn't, or he didn't really love Leah. 
And we also find obedience in the Old Testament prior to the giving of the law, but there's nothing specifically in those commandments about loving God. Enoch obeyed God, Noah obeyed God, Abraham obeyed God, but we don't find a commandment that says, you must love me. Now you say, well, wait a minute, that that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Didn't Enoch love God? And didn't Noah love God? And didn't Abraham love God? Well, absolutely, they love God. And the way that we know they love God was because of their obedience. The proof is their obedience. So you'd never hear Abraham say, well, okay, God, I will obey you. I'll take Isaac. I'll make him a sacrifice. But that certainly does not mean I love you. Matter of fact, I'm mad at you, God, because you asked me to do such a thing. You wouldn't hear that from Abraham. The reason that he sacrificed Isaac was because of his love and his trust for God. I mean, he believed that God was going to raise him from the dead. So that obedience was an indicator that he did love God. But it wasn't actually until God gave the law to Moses that this was written down, that this was codified on tables of stone, that we are to love God. Now, an interesting thing about this is without the written law, the Bible teaches that there is still law. Obeying God did not become the law when the Ten Commandments were given. It was there all along. And that principle is seen in Romans chapter 5. When Paul writes this, he says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Now, Paul's argument there is that the law is not what made men sinners. They were already sinners. And the proof that they were sinners was that they died. They were transgressors against God's law. So even without a law that was written down on stones, men were still sinners. And so, in like manner, the law to love God and to obey God was already in existence. It was there before it was actually codified with Moses on Mount Sinai. So it's not an old, it's not an, uh, it is rather an old commandment, and it's so old that you could actually go back to Adam, and you could go back to Noah, you can go back to Abraham, who lived long before Moses did, and you can find the principle that says we are to love God. Now the point here is that we are to understand, and what we understand now in a better way, is that loving God properly means that our love has to extend to our fellow man. The patriarchs loved God before the law was given and before it was codified, and yet that would tell us that they must have also loved others. It tells us they must have treated other people well because we could never consider that they could love God without loving other people. So the old commandment is very old. It actually goes back to the very beginning. Then it was codified into a written text with Moses. And the Jews had possession of it for 1,500 years because it was faithfully transmitted by the diligence of the scribes. Now what about the old commandment seen in the New Testament? Well, we say secondly that this was summarized by Christ. Leviticus 19.8 is the law that's referred to when Jesus was asked, Which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus answered that the greatest commandment is actually Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. He said, And thou shalt, or the scripture in Deuteronomy 6, 5 says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. But when Jesus was asked that question, he didn't stop with the greatest commandment. He followed it up with the second greatest. 
He was asked the question, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. That's Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Leviticus 19:18. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And the most powerful thing that you ever learn about the Ten Commandments is that none of them is kept without all of them being kept. James said it this way, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. See, Jesus knew that the Pharisees that he spoke to claimed to love God. The very same ones that said, We love God and we keep the commandments are the same ones that he accused of devouring widows' houses They were the same ones who excused themselves from taking care of their parents by saying their money had been dedicated to the temple. They're the same ones that hated Gentiles and anybody who wasn't just like them. And so for them, Jesus distilled all the law down to two very easy points for them. He said, you have to love God and you must love your fellow man. And the truth of it is, you can't do either or. You have to do both. Because if you haven't done both, then you've done neither. So here's what it comes down to. Understanding the old commandment means that if you love your brother, you're not going to kill him. If you love him, you're not going to steal from him. If you love him, you're not going to commit adultery with his wife. If you love him, you're not going to be jealous of him. You're not going to desire what he has and think that you deserve what he has more than he deserves it. You're not going to think like that at all because loving people prevent you from doing that. So James called loving your neighbor, loving your neighbor as yourself, the royal law. And Jesus elevated it a step further to what we call the golden rule today when he spoke Matthew seven twelve. Therefore, all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. So that's not a negative command of don't do. It's a positive command of going first, doing first, loving first, acting first, and doing for others what you would like for them to do for you. So that was in the law all along. It's actually very old. It came from the beginning of creation, codified by Moses. We find it in the Old Testament. And here in the New Testament, we find it summarized and folded into the full compendium of the law by Jesus giving two commands. Now, there's another aspect in which John means that this is an old commandment. And sometimes people argue about this. Which of these is meant primarily? What, what Does he mean the, the old law as codified by Moses? Or does he mean this? Does he mean what you realized at the beginning of your faith? Is it what you received when you got saved? So John is saying also, I'm not telling you that something, uh, something as a Christian that you don't know, because at the very beginning, when you first came to Christ, you were told this. This is just basic, fundamental information for those who are Christians. There's no new doctrine here. It's not something that in your Christian life is going to be filled in later, and you'll be surprised when it actually does come up. No, you get this right at the very beginning when you're saved. You see, in those years of... Uh, when Christianity was just beginning, the most distinguishing mark of this new sect, as the heathens would call it, this new sect of Christianity, the most distinguishing mark was the way in which they treated each other. Anyone that was contemplating the faith would have noticed this. They, they, they would watch this go on. 
There were thousands of people that were saved in Jerusalem right after the uh, day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 saved, and then 20,000, 30,000 more people were saved right after that. And with all the oppression and persecution that was going on in Jerusalem and these people becoming Christians and losing their jobs and all the difficulties that they had, they were in extreme poverty. We find that what they did was to begin to pool their resources. In Acts chapter 4, we find that people went and sold houses. They sold lands. and They came and brought the money and gave it to the apostles. Then the apostles collected all of that money up and they began to distribute, it, to distribute it to people as they had need. And so you couldn't miss this. Something had happened to these people. There was something very different about them. They were changed. The class differential was also melted down. 50% of the Roman Empire was in slavery to the other 50%, but that made no difference. It made no difference in the way that Christians treated one another. And so when people became Christians, that 50% uh, that was slaves or that were in that category, Paul said to them, don't hate your master. You love him. You obey him. You do exactly what he says, unless what he tells you contradicts God's word. But other than that, you do what you're required to do. And to the masters, he said, you don't hate your slaves. You treat them right. Treat them in the way they need to be treated. And so we find here that in the very beginning of Christianity, this principle of loving your neighbor, the principle of love was infused into them. And so it came from the Old Testament law, that's for sure. We found it there. It was amplified by Jesus. And you didn't get saved without this. You had to know this. You love God and you love others. That was an identifying mark of their belief. So it wasn't something they haven't heard before. It was an old commandment. It's the word that they heard from the beginning. But we notice here in verse number 8 that he also phrases this as a new commandment. He says, again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. So what then about the new commandment? What do we say about that? Well, we notice again here that we are dealing with the word commandment. This is law. It's God's law that is undergirded by love. The entire law of of God is undergirded by this principle of love. So you have ten commandments and not one of them could ever be separated from love. It's always love God and love your fellow man. But we've already said that's old. So in what sense can we say that this is new? Well, it's new in a couple of ways. First of all, it is a gospel of inclusion. The inclusion hit us in the head in verse number 2 of chapter 2. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And we spent a lot of time dealing with that. And if you miss the meaning of verse number 2, that John was making a very clear distinction between Jews and Gentiles, then you're also going to miss the part of this which makes love your neighbor new to them. Now, it's not, again, that God never said in the Old Testament that Jews uh, shouldn't love Gentiles. It's not that he didn't say that. It was there, but the Jews never actually took it that way. They saw the word neighbor, that you are to love your neighbor, and they put qualifications on it. To them, neighbor meant those that are in your nation. Uh, It's those that are in your tribe, or you can get down narrower, and you say it's those that are in your clan, and even further, those that are in your immediate family. And it just kept getting narrower and narrower and narrower until the time when you get to Jesus that 
the ones that you are supposed to love are the ones that are actually in your strictest of all religious sects. You love them because they're like you. And so it got narrowed down. You, do, you don't have to love sinners, also known as Gentiles. You don't have to love them. You can narrow it down again even further, uh, your nation. You can whittle it down again to your clan. Narrow it down that you don't really have to love anybody but those that you normally mingle with. And then you can cut it down even further than that. You don't really have to love anybody but the guy that's in the tent next to you. But then go even further than that. Get it down to your own family. You don't really have to love anybody but me and mine, us four and no more, if that's what you want to do. So the new commandment was this tightly condensed ball. And what Jesus came, when he came, and he started to expound upon this, this whole thing exploded like a hand grenade. The shrapnel started going out everywhere. And it started hitting people that are like you and people who are least like you. And so love began to emanate from these people. It's just like Moses coming down from Mount Sinai with his face shining with the glory of God. You want this to happen. If you're a child of God, you want your love to go out. You want people to know that you love them. And you remember how we talked about how uh, the expansion of neighbor is found in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus talked about it there? Neighbor to Jesus meant even those that you would despise. Neighbor to him meant those that you would pass by on the other street and you would try to spit on them from way over there. That's what he meant by neighbor, and that's why he gave the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'm not going to go into all that tonight, but you remember there was a priest that passed by. There was a Levite that passed by. Both of them stayed on their side of the street so they didn't get too close to that man who was in trouble, the one who was wounded. And the one who came and helped him was a despised Samaritan. And Jesus said then, which one of them was his neighbor? And that point was driven home to them like a 20-pound sledgehammer on a 16-penny nail. They knew what he meant, and it was new. It was radical. These self-righteous, hypocritical Pharisees, they hadn't heard that one before. And this newness also caused a hated tax collector named Zacchaeus. It caused him to give back everything that he had stolen. It caused him to give half of his possessions to the poor, and then to give four times, restore four times what he'd taken unjustly from the people. This was new stuff, folks. I mean, they'd never seen anything like this this before. So this commandment took on new proportions. Well, after walking and talking with Jesus for those three years, the disciples often did not get this. I mean, they missed this over and over again. They could not understand why Jesus sat down on the side of a well and began to speak to a woman. And worse than that, she was a Samaritan woman. Why would you do that? Why would you ever talk to somebody like that? Why would you give that person who's thirsty and that person who needs eternal life and needs the the water of life, why would you give it to them? And the disciples didn't get that. Remember, we said James and John were called the sons of thunder, and they're the ones that wanted to call down fire from heaven to consume Samaritans. They missed it. They couldn't figure out why you'd want to deal with Samaritans and give them living water. Why them? Well, how new do you think it was to everybody else when Jesus' own disciples couldn't get this? This is why John says it's a new commandment, because Jesus made something totally new of it in the way that he taught it. Secondly, we see this. It's a gospel of incarnation. 
And you say, well, what does that have to do with it? Well, John mentions the incarnation in uh, verse 1 of chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. He's speaking of the incarnation of Christ. That's God in the flesh. Then he speaks of it again in chapter 4. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And so you might wonder, what does the incarnation have to do with this new commandment? What makes that, what, how does that make it new? Well, the command is most magnanimously displayed in such a way that Jews nor Gentiles could wrap their heads around this. The Jews could, didn't get it. I mean, they just could not see God walking around with them. They couldn't accept that Jesus was God. I mean, they, they could not see God walking with them. Jesus flipped their thinking completely around. I mean, turned everything upside down. And they thought that they knew God. And here they are speaking to Jesus who claimed to be God. And in their minds, God would never say the outlandish things that Jesus said. And then the Gentiles couldn't take it. We look here and we find the Gnostics, they couldn't take it because Greek philosophy had taught them that only evil comes out of the flesh. To them, flesh, skin, bones, the body, all of that's inherently evil. And that's why John emphasizes the incarnation to them particularly. No way they said that God could become a human because flesh is evil. So how new is this kind of love? Well, it caused God to become a man. It caused him to step off of his throne. And you should know that well from our study in Philippians. Philippians 2 verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. What mind is that? Well, let verses 3 and 4 explain it. Now, interestingly, what's said in verses 3 and 4, Philippians chapter 2, is the same as Matthew seven twelve, stated in just a little bit different way, do unto others. It's that kind of mind, a real love kind of mind. It says, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. That's the old commandment that we're reading about, isn't it? But look how it becomes just gloriously brand spanking new, even beyond belief. That comes in the next verses. Verse 5 again, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You remember in that exposition of Matthew seven twelve that I said Christ... Christ did for us what he would want to be done for him if he was on the way to hell. That's what Christ did. Christ took charge of this and he condescended to die the most despicable type of death that anyone could die. He went to a Roman cross that was reserved for the worst of criminals. He was perfectly innocent himself and yet he bore the sins of the guilty. See, that's love beyond what anybody could imagine. No one expects this to happen. No one ever thought of God in that way. That God himself becomes man, and then he gives himself as a sacrifice for sin. Folks, that was new to everybody's thinking. And yet, this is what God was teaching in the Old Testament all along. That's why the Jews made all the sacrifices. Because God was saying, this is going to happen one day. 
The Son of God is going to come. And what that did is it made this old commandment, this law of love, the most glorious that it could possibly be. The old commandment never sparkled before like it did when Jesus took it up himself and became an example of it. So God intended that all along. The slaying of all those animals was to show us what God himself would do. Now, an animal rights activist would never get that, I don't think. But that's what he did. So the pictures are all very, very old. But they were refreshingly new when the gospel shined into their hearts and they began to understand what Christ did for them, how Christ fulfilled the law. So he took love, he took love God, and he took love your fellow man to heights that had never been seen before. And so that is the old commandment given to us in a gloriously new way. And that's why we call it love without limits. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we don't even know how to express what it is to have a savior like Jesus that God should become man and come to this earth and die for us there's no way that we can contemplate how glorious that that truly is love beyond measure love beyond compare and we thank you so much that you did this for us Lord bless your people tonight and may we understand very clearly as we go through this that If we say that we love you, it also includes loving those that are around us, loving even those that are enemies, and most certainly it includes loving those that are in our own church. Lord, help us to treat one another right and to show that love in in many different ways. And we give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.